Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. Hi, this is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Conversation of the Week. Today, I'll be chatting with three-time U.S. Olympic diving coach Jeff Huber, who will share some insights on preparing effectively for competition gleaned from 37 years of coaching athletes at the highest level. So in the past, you and I have, have had conversations about practice, um, and I'm sure that'll come up at some point today. Um, but the more I hear about diving, the more I learn about diving from you and talking to some other divers and reading the books that you've written, it seems to me that there actually are a lot of uh, similarities between diving and, and playing a musical instrument, like singing or, or playing the trumpet or the horn or even the violin or cello. Um, but, you know, I think as spectators, we just see somebody get up onto the platform and dive off and everything when it goes well, looks so easy and effortless. And clearly it's not, but we have no concept of what goes through a diver's mind or what they have to deal with and what practice is like for them. I wonder if you can just walk us through like physically, mentally, and like what happens in those moments. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I think there's a great similarity between getting up. Although when you say play the violin or piano, you get to wear your clothes, right? <laughs> but there's a little difference there, but there's so many similarities in the class I teach here at IU on psychology of coaching and motor performance. I, I get a lot of music uh, majors, uh, undergrads, masters, PhD students who are really interested in, in that. And so I think there's a lot of similarities. And um, I think there's a big difference between what you do in a practice room or in practice as a diver or as a practice room as a musician. And when, when that curtain comes up or when you have to stand up there on uh, uh, that platform in front of everybody, and it is, especially when you go to the Olympics, you know, I, I, I think one of the best things to, to keep in mind is like if I have a diver, would have a diver make the Olympic team. We talk about the pressure because we know it's going to be there and we have to predict that and prepare for, it. you know, you're going to hit the water at 33 miles an hour. And I know that water seems uh, really soft, but I can tell you as a former athlete landing flat up there, I thought one time I thought maybe somebody threw a uh, piece of concrete in the water and I hit it with my feet. But you you have to really prepare for that, and um, um, it's it's a different beast. And when you go to the Olympics, you not only you know we typically perform in front of maybe three four hundred people, but when you go to the Olympics, there might be ten thousand people there, and a billion people a billion people watch on TV, 
and you're up there naked practically and and every every single eye is on you and the other thing is is that um and very much like when you're playing a solo instrument you know um you can't hide behind anybody um you know there's nobody to point the finger at and say well so and so messed up because if if you mess up everybody knows about it so there's a lot of preparation that goes into that i mean and and obviously there's the uh you know, fundamental preparation that you do uh, leading up to all of that. But I think that, um, you know, a lot of performers forget that practice is just a means to an end. And the end is really to get up and do your have your best performance when that curtain rises or when, you know, they, your, your name is called and you climb that ladder and you're ready. And so everything you do in practice prepares for it. So um, so that's important. And I can talk more about practice. But I think your question was really more pertaining to maybe that moment before you go up there. Is that, is yeah. that right? Yeah, I mean, you said a couple things that I want to follow up on too. But, but first, I'm really curious about, you know, what's going through the mind of a diver who's probably going to nail that dive versus what's going through the mind of a diver in that moment walking up to the top or right before they dive where it's maybe not going to go so successfully. They're not going to dive like they can yeah, you know, and I think at, at the the highest level, everybody is physically prepared. The real difference is who is mentally prepared. And you know, I love the USOC sports psychologist said, you know, um, having mental skills won't guarantee winning an Olympic medal, but the lack of mental skills will guarantee losing one. And so I think the big biggest difference is what's going on um, between the ears. And uh, I really believe strongly in a, a pre-routine, um, a pre-performance routine that divers develop. And, and a lot of performers have that, but, but it's almost unconscious or they're not aware of it and they do it sometimes and sometimes they don't. And and so I really used to have my divers be very conscious and we would talk about how to develop a pre-performance routine because I think it, so those things are what, you know, you always want to feel just that little bit of comfort. You know, I was thinking the other day, um, I used to go to this pool, and it was uh, it was I would never dive well there. And then I thought back, and I go, you know, I, part of that's because I'm always cold there. You know, the water's cold, it's drafty. So I did all this stuff to prepare to uh, to dress and be warm. And I went there, and I had a great meet. I, I final, you know, it was a big deal for me to be a national finalist. And, and it really, you know, it really wasn't dressing warm that was as important to me as, as much as I had taken some time to really think about what I needed to do to prepare. And so before I would go up, you know, I just would take off my socks and sweatshirt and everything that, that I had. And, and I just felt prepared. And so I think those moments before you go on are really critical. What can you do to prepare so that, you know, because you can flip the switch where you, you all suddenly just feel unprepared or oh, I've got it, you know, that voice in you. So, and a lot of that just goes back to the, you know, the five pillars that I call the five pillars of mental training. And, you know, a lot of that is, um, um, has to do with self-talk, you know, visualization, energy management, and those sorts of things. And I, and, and I think that you really have to have that routine. And so I would teach, for example, um, Christina Lucas, who is a terrific, uh, terrific person, student, athlete, and all that. We had a very specific routine, and, you know, she would come over X number of dives, divers ahead of time, 
I would always give her like maybe just one thing to think about and a little pep talk. And then she would go over and she would, uh, you know, visualize a dive uh, many times and she would rehearse it physically. Uh, and, and again, you know, instead of waiting there, waiting for your turn, you're actually doing something. And I think that anytime you can do something, you know, you feel empowered because now the situation is not controlling you. You're controlling the situation. So she would visualize, self-talk, uh, rehearse it. Right. And then she she would get up on the ladder. So it was a very, very um, consistent routine. But she would get up on the ladder and she would always um, maybe uh, she had a phrase that she would tell herself. And then the last thing she would do is just take this small breath and, and kind of exhale. And then she would go. And every time I would see that little breath, I go, we got it. You know, she just looked prepared. So I think that um, as you're you know, climbing that ladder, the things that you do beforehand are, are very important. And, and that's not to say there's no substitute for practice. We all know that if you can't do it in the practice room, you ain't going to do it in front of everybody else. There's, you know, you can't rely on luck. But I've, I've seen many times where athletes have trained, and I did that as a coach, where they've trained super hard physically, and they, they were ready physically, but they weren't ready mentally. And, you know, you've got to have both. By that, do you mean like maybe they, they trained physically, but they didn't think about making sure they were warm and not distracted and had something to do and remembered to breathe and have this mantra? You mean those sorts of things that they didn't prepare? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. That's part of it uh, for sure. Um, uh, I think the other part is drawing that connection between practice and performance. Uh, we forget, and I mentioned that earlier, you know, we forget the practice is a means to having these great performances. And I can remember as an athlete, I came in one day and had a great, great practice. And I go, man, I'm ready for, for nationals. And then the next day I came in and had a horrible practice. And I asked myself, well, what if I come in and have this day at nationals and not the day I had yesterday? And so that, that changed everything for me. I mean, I started re realizing that everything I did in practice somehow connected to what I was going to do in performance when I had to perform in front of people. And so I started, you know, really, it, it changed my perspective and it really uh, heightened the importance of practice to me because it's easy, especially, in a, you know, for musicians, they do a lot more practice by themselves. Nobody's watching. And, you know, you can do certain things. And, and, and I just got to the point where I didn't want to do anything poorly. I didn't want to do anything that I wasn't fully uh, focused on and giving my best effort. I just didn't want to slough through anything because I couldn't slough through something at the at the national level. It had to be spot on. So so you're training your brain there, and and then all of a sudden, you know, those performances that you do carry out. I mean, I would get nervous sometimes before a practice dive because I felt like it was competition, and so you're able to really kind of when you put that emphasis on those particular performances. Hey, nobody's watching. You could mess, mess up and nobody would care. But I cared. And I would actually have to work on calming down and focusing just like I would in the meet. And so what would happen is that now I, I'm, you know, hundreds of times and I would start to do that. I would I would focus on I would pretend that there was an audience there every time I would do a, a dive. And and so I started to you know, I felt like when I got to a championship that I'd already done these dives hundreds of times in front of spectators at the national championship. So, I mean, there's a lot that goes into that, but, but I guess that's what I mean by everything that you do in practice has to somehow 
prepare you for the championship. And, and, you know, when we look at elite performers in any field, whether it's physics, problem solving, grandmaster chess players, violinists, or, you know, uh, pianists or whatever it might be, um, they're always looking for ways to improve performance. But it, um, the big difference is that it's not performance, it's competition performance, right? It's not practice performance. They're looking for ways that this is going to improve their performance when it counts the most. I think that's a huge distinction that that we tend not to think of very often because, I mean, at least for musicians anyway, we don't get a, a lot of opportunities to perform, at least for many musicians. Uh, whereas with athletes, you know, depending on the sport, you know, there are, are practices which are somewhat more public. And then there's, um, you know, if you're a baseball player, you play, it seems like a million games every season. And then there's spring training and all that. Um but yeah, that connection between the things that you do in practice having to tie directly to competition performance, I think, is huge. And, and you gave some examples of that. Um, and I remember hearing you tell the story about um, how the NCAA has these has these limits on the number of hours you can have with your athletes and how you have to be a lot more mindful of what you're going to use that time on because you can't exceed that amount of practice time per week with your athletes. Could you... Tell me a little bit about the sorts of things that you had to maybe discard that didn't tie directly to competition performance for a particular athlete, perhaps. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean that's a um, that was really a fundamental focus of mine is, is how can we maximize the time we have, and when I say maximize, I mean every second. You know, I mean as soon as an athlete comes in, I want them, and I would tell them that. I wanted them to t- always take their practice home with them. And I don't mean in a negative way because I, I know some performers can go home and go, oh, that was so bad. And I don't, you know, but but to take it home and, and, and dispassionately, cognitively kind of analyze what you're doing, you know, what what you learned, what, uh, what you need to work on tomorrow so that when you come into that practice, boom, you're, you're already immediately ready. And I would uh, create uh, IPPs, individualized practice plans, for each of my athletes. And um, I would just do it in my head, and that meant that I had to uh, mentally review everything they did each practice. And then while they were stretching, I would tell them their specific goals. So they has, everything they did um, has a specific purpose. And, you know, it's real easy for uh, performers there's certain things that we kind of do. Maybe my teacher used to do it, or I did it when I was young. Um, the, the things that uh, are, are maybe perfunctory or, you know, just things you do. But, it, I, you know, it's like, are they helping you? And if they're not, discard it. You know, we, uh, I think elite performers don't want to do anything in practice that doesn't get them better, that doesn't lead. They don't want to do it just because it's a, it's a procedure or something that they – um, are typically doing they want to, you know they want to do things that are going to help them and and um, and then I think trying to find ways to really focus on okay how is this helping me I can remember um, I had a diver who she did not have good flexibility and it was really I took her over and I showed her where she it took her really a long time to collapse into a pipe position her first dive was a front three and a half. I know that's not a music <laughs> term there but but I 
But then I asked her, I said, when do you think practice starts? And she said, well, you know, once I get up on the diving board. And I said, really, you don't think it starts when you when you stretch? And um, she she kind of thought about because stretching to her was kind of social time. It really wasn't. And I don't want to take anything away from her. She's a great diver. I mean, she still holds the NC2A record. But uh, but I said, you have some gaps. And I said, practice starts as soon as you actually actually when you leave practice is when it starts for the next practice. I want you to think about that. But when you come in, I said, you know, take this. And she was terrific. She she would come in and I even gave her an extra 15, 20 minutes to stretch and she would get done stretching and she would be soaking wet with a sh- her T-shirt. I mean, she stretched that hard, but that made a huge difference. You know, over uh, probably two months time, her front three and a half became her best dive and not her worst dive. So uh, I think everything you do in practice has to have a purpose. And a, um, and, it, and the more you do that, the more you get in return because you're starting to feel like, oh, man, I'm, I'm, ga- I'm making bigger gains. I'm getting good. You know, and, and that all leads to a feeling of empowerment and, and, and confidence. So this would be like maybe for a musician using scales to work on, um, you know, smoother bow changes, which might be something that you're struggling with in a piece or shifting more smoothly and lightening up with your fingers or something. So instead of just going through the motions of scales, actually trying to find some purpose to improve when you're doing scales so that it transfers to the pieces that you're working on kind of in that sort of way? Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a perfect example. How many things do we often do that we just kind of do with half a ten, half our attention? And and they're important. I mean, and if they're not important, don't do them. But if they are important, man. So, and maybe there's not a, a, an easy, simple formula to figuring this out, but, but how did you guys go about figuring out which things are helping improve performance that translates into competition and things that aren't as directly translating into competition performance? That's a great question. I mean, I, I you know, during a certain part of the season, I, I didn't want to really practice the things we were doing well. I mean, these are, you know, a telediver. That, you know, we're going to work on – don't forget that you do a hundred things really, really well, but we're only going to work on the things that you're not doing well. Well, we're going to do some, uh, you know, some of the good things too, but we're going to really zero in on your weaknesses and we're going to make those strengths. So when you, when, when you focus like that, I mean, it's easy to, to see, okay, these are the things that we're working on. We know that they're, they're uh, imperfect. We know they can get better. And so I think when you do that, it's easier to, to, monitor and say, mm, okay, this is getting better or no. And, and uh, we wound up really developing uh, drills. I had people from all over the world calling me, ask me what kind of drills we did uh, to learn these new type of dives that nobody else when we first started was doing. And um, so I think there's, there's some of that too, some inventiveness, you know, finding out what works for you, creating maybe different drills or challenges that really are effective. This reminds me a lot about what um, there's a percussionist in the Met here in New York who 
as part of his warm-ups, oftentimes will take something that he's struggling in in a in a piece or an excerpt that he's working on and turn that into an exercise or a drill, in essence, and use that as part of his warm-ups to kind of work on that skill in isolation. Um, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Could you give me like a diving example maybe of a, of a time where you guys invented a drill to work on a specific um, technique or, or maneuver? Well, when they uh, there was a point in, di- in uh, international diving where they just said, look, uh, we're no longer – you used to be able to only do the dives that were listed in the diving FINA. Uh, FINA is an international organization for diving and aquatic sports. And they said, well, instead of it being listed, we just have a formula. So if you do a dive, you just can look at the number of twists and the somersaults and the direction and all of that do the formula and add it up. And so as soon as that came out, I, I thought, mm, there, there's going to be some areas where we can do some high degree of difficulty dives and um, and do well. And so there were dives that I'd never seen anybody do. So we did a lot of experimentation. And in, in this case, it was a back arm stand, you know, before you never even could do back arm stands. Now everybody does them. So we developed some some drills, and I, I think you just have to. And and my and what I read about and research for elite performers is they're they're often looking for that that uh, edge. So they're often looking for ways to do things to train differently, to practice differently that nobody else is doing. Mm-hmm. And um, they're finding these little things that just and you know when you do little things add up to to, you know, a couple of big things. And I think um, that's why I think, you know, the, the mind is so important, just uh, analyzing and evaluating and, um, you know, creating. And, uh, you know, if, if, if we didn't have, like the drills we were doing, we'd throw them out. we just stop doing them and, and uh, find some different ones that were effective. So I always knew that uh, I had a, a great diver in the making in the future when, when the diver would come up to me before practice and say, hey, hey, coach, I was thinking, boy, if you said that to me, that made my day because you, that means you went home. You were really, really thinking about what you you had done the day before. And, you know, two heads are always better than one. I don't I didn't have all the answers. And I'll be honest with you. Some of those drills that uh, we came up with, some of my athletes uh, created. So give them a lot of credit. Sounds like that makes the process a lot more creative and fun when you're getting to invent or develop new things. Um, I think for, for me, at least I grew up with this stack of books, you know, certain kinds of scales uh, edited by certain folks, you know, who were, you know, legendary figures in the, in the, uh, in music pedagogical history and, and for good reason, but it never once occurred to me, and maybe this was just me, but it never occurred to me to like actually tweak anything or adapt anything or invent my own particular drills or exercises to work on specific things. Um, and I think, you know, maybe there were times where I could have thought a little bit about it and, and maybe come up with something that would have served a particular purpose in a particular piece. So I, I don't know. I think it's kind of cool to, to give yourself permission maybe to, to think in those terms and maybe even combine exercises from different books even to start to create your own drills and exercises. Yeah, that's a, that's a great comment. And I think uh, 
you know, learning can be very individualized. And so, you know, finding what works for you is, is most important. And I, you know, I had kids who uh, would do different drills because they just, they, they got more bang from their buck from the different drills on the same, you know, preparing for the same performance, same dive, but using different drills because it just seemed to zero in on specific weaknesses. I know that you spoke before, or maybe you wrote about this, where, uh, you know, divers would sometimes deliberately mess up part of a dive in warm-ups. So they wouldn't use their good dive you know, mm-hmm. in warm-ups. Um, and I think that's really different than what, at least what I used to do. I used to play the, the darn thing over and over in the warm-up room just to try to convince myself that I could do it when it really counted you know, 10 minutes later when I'd end up on stage. And of course, that wasn't any guarantee that it would work on stage. Sometimes it would, sometimes it wouldn't. Did you guys ever have any any methods or techniques or practice strategies for trying to cultivate that sort of trust that when it mattered, they could execute? Well, first I want to kind of go back and... Um, You know, how, <clears throat> how I think most athletes feel like, let's say you have a really, really good practice session and you just lay it all on the line and you're focused and you've had a great performances. How do you typically feel after that? Probably a little flat, right? Like, OK, I just I gave it my all. And, and so one of the things that, that I try to tell my athletes is save it for the competition, save that, that little special, um, because, and I don't mind if you're, you know, if you don't, first of all, who cares how you warm up? Because the only thing that really matters is how you perform. You know, I nobody ever got a medal for, for warmups. And so I, I would tell them, say, save that little special something, you know, because you know, you're a little nervous, right? You're going to take those butterflies, get them to fly in formation and you're going to do some amazing things. Don't do it before the performance. Hold yourself back, you know. Wait for that moment and then let it go. And I, I think I think that's, um, you know, personally for me, I found out, uh, you know, we, I used to k- want to kill it in warm-up, and then I would feel flat for the competition. And then we went to a, a competition one time. Our bus was late. We got there, and I was only able to do one warm-up dive, one warm-up dive, I and mean, that's like nothing. And then I went out and had the best meet of my life. And on the bus ride home, I saw, I thought, what's warm-up for? What's, what's, the reason, what's the reason for warm-up, you know? And warm-up is a time to get ready to perform. And so I think there's, uh, you know, and I know Greg Luganis, a great uh, Olympic diver, uh, he just never wanted to hit it. If he was going straight in on a great dive, he would just break his legs and, you know, flail the water. He just didn't, he wanted to save it for the meet. So... So I think that's important to keep in mind that you want to save your, your best for when it counts. And uh, I don't know if that answered your question or if I need to go back now. And- yeah, no, it does. I remember uh, listening to a friend talk the other day about how, you know, sometimes just walking into an audition room, you see other people warming up and, and just hearing them tune, 
you start thinking, man, that person sounds amazing. You know, they're just playing open strings and you start psyching yourself out in warm-ups, even though that has no bearing on what they're going to sound like when they start playing real notes on stage, you know, 10 minutes, an hour, two hours later. Um, so yeah, well, I wonder if maybe you could, you could share the the story. That is so so much like diving Mm -hmm. because you come in and, you know, I mean, it's it's like a moth drawn to the flame. You know, I'd have have divers who they couldn't take their eyes off of everybody's diving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our, our attentional capacity is very limited. I mean, yeah, I would tell them how many people can you, you know, can you watch 50 people warming up at once or should should you be just focused on you? I mean, I had a kid one time I went to nationals. And I couldn't get him to look at me when I was coaching him because he couldn't take his eyes off the competition. So I think it's really that's a big moment, too. When you walk in there, you a lot goes on before that. You know, I would I would coach my kids to say, look, when you go in, there's just you and me, you know, and that's your focus. And because you're, you're right, you you don't remember, like, if everybody's warming up, you, you only remember the people that did the great dives. So in your, your mind, it's like, oh, everybody's diving well everybody's playing well i you know now i'm thinking about everybody else and i'm psyching myself out so i think that's a huge moment yeah. when you come in that you've got to just be tunnel focus this is you know my party i'm gonna go out and take my dance i've worked i've earned it. it's my time so is this part of preparation too like you talked about earlier with you know making sure you had your sweats on and maybe even the kind of music you like and just sort of like all that stuff to keep you occupied. So you have something to do while you're waiting around. Well, I, I think this is more of what you're going to, what, what you're focusing on. Yeah. I mean, so you're going to be focused on the things you want to do and you have a plan. I would have, have my athletes script out. Like when they, they walk in, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the locker room, change, mm-hmm. you're gonna do this. You're going to go in here. You're going to come over to me. You're going to focus. And, and, and I, we would go through that and then I would have like, uh, freshman kids who okay that was our plan but what do they do they they, <laughs> they, they you know, bring them over and go what are you doing well, what do you mean I said, you're standing here watching everybody dive what are you supposed to do oh coach i'm sorry i just you know it's, it's just human nature i think <laughs> did they have these things written down uh sometimes i would have uh, athletes um some athletes were better than others Right. But the ones who did care, uh, write a journal in a journal yeah. were very successful. So they would write it down. But, I mean, a lot of it, you know, we talked about. And then after a meet, we would say, hey, this worked, this didn't. Okay. Um, I, I think, too, that uh, people are different. If you're very uh, highly sensitive as a person, mm-hmm. uh, typically that means that you um, absorb a lot of external stimuli. Right. And so that can be very draining. So kids that I identified as maybe highly uh, sensitive to those sorts of things, I would really monitor them. Mm. You know, if you go to the Olympic Games, I had one diver. I said, you go in, you do your practice, and you leave. You are not going to be on the pool deck. It's very distracting to you. Uh, You go back, you do whatever you want. Uh, But we had a very specific plan on that. So I think there's individual difference. Some kids, they don't mind. They can watch some people warm up and they get kind of jazzed about it. They're ready to compete. So I think there's a lot of individual differences there too. And I think, again, you know, coach, I was thinking, find out what works for you, you know, as an individual and then buy into that and then believe in it and, and embrace it. Do it, you know, cause it's your thing, you know, walk into a, you know, a room and get psyched out, you know, be, be who you want to be and, and know what, what's going to help you tick. 
and what's going to help you be ready to perform. Because all you can do is just go out and have your best performance, right? And then right. let the cards, you know, fall where they may. But to not have your best performance is a shame, you know, because if you've trained really hard and you've practiced and you're ready, okay, let's go do it. And uh, who cares about anything else? All you can do is control that one great performance. Well, I like that because then it means that each competition or each meet isn't, it's not just about the performance, it's about experimenting with new variables that you're tweaking from one to the next. Uh, You know, like with this kid who did better when, they just warmed up and got out of there. It's like you had to try that a few times to see if that works better or if sticking around works better and so forth. And then, you know, the journal and the taking notes and kind of figuring out from one to the next. I imagine that over the course of a four-year career, you end up getting a lot clearer about what your optimal game plan um, needs to be then to, to perform more optimally, which I think makes a lot of sense for musicians too if they're on the audition circuit or even just going through you know, high school or college performances, studio classes, auditions, summer festivals, and so forth. The last thing that I wanted to ask is, uh, I mean, off the top of your head, I mean, I love the book you wrote about applying ed psych to, to coaching athletes, and I'll, I'll link to that in the post. But which books during your coaching career have you come across that have been really influential to you and, and shaped your thinking and shaped the way that you worked with athletes and coached athletes oh gosh that's a good good question um well the the book i wrote on applying educational psychology and coaching athletes was really kind of inspired by a psychology of teaching textbook that i just fell in love with i love the humor i love the uh, uh application of everything it did Uh, but that's no longer in print (laughs) but (laughs) so that's why i wrote my book but um yeah, it's some turning points. I think I shared that with you when we were out there with uh, uh, Angela Duckworth when I read um, uh, Anders Ericsson's book, The Road to Excellence. Uh-huh. It's kind of a turning point in my career because basically what he said was it's not about the talent, but it's about what you, how you train with the uh-huh. deliberate practice. And I know, you know, a lot of times I hear people say, well, if you have goals for practice, that's deliberate practice. But I really, I mean, I've really tried to outline in my book, there's a lot more to it than just specific goals, what you're doing. Uh, But that was a turning point because I'd look myself in the mirror and say, you know what, I was using an excuse. I kept telling myself I didn't have champions because I didn't have the talent. And so when I read that book in uh, uh, 1996, I was all in. I stopped teaching. I said, I'm I'm completely in as a coach. Here's what we're going to do. And I think in 98, we had our first national team championship. In 2000, we put somebody on the Olympic team. I've encouraged my athletes to be, I I think coaches, teachers need to continue to grow, and so do athletes. And so always having something to read to really um, fill your mind with the right stuff. And I know that when I would go to particularly big meets, but every meet I went to, I always had a book, so at night the last thing I would be reading about my – I got really the last probably five or six years, I really got into sports psychology. So I always had one of those books with me. And, you know, it's great to read about that before you go to sleep at night because in the morning you get up. And I'm, I want to be uh, mentally prepared as a, as a coach, but then to, you know, approach my athletes with that. So um, I think that's important.